0: It is lovely to be here tonight. It is uh, wonderful, always as always, to be uh, part of Holy Trinity. My wife, Rebecca, and I have been uh, part of the community here now for, I think, about 18 months-ish, thereabouts. Uh, and it's an absolute pleasure to bring God's Word to you tonight. Let's um, just open with a very brief moment of prayer. Father, we ask that tonight you will refresh us again through your Word and remind us uh, once again of your amazing salvation. Amen. Okay, Um, tonight uh, we're going to start off really not with me. Um, I'm going to let Milton Jones, the wonderful comedian and uh, Christian, um, open it for me. Tricky, isn't it, if you're both a moth and a sea captain? (laughs) In charge of a ship, but up ahead, you see a lighthouse. (laughs) You know you shouldn't. <laughs> light is an attractive thing, and not just to moths, is my opening statement. It's very true that we do rely on light for a huge amount of things. It enables us to do things for a start, it enables us to grow crops, it enables us to see beauty. It provides safety. Many of the world's religions make a similar light analogy uh, with their deities, and maybe in this passage John was invoking that same idea. But actually the Old Testament is full of light-related imagery. God is manifested as flames in Exodus 30, uh, Exodus and Psalm 104, and in that same Psalm God is also clothed in light. Light is used to symbolize God's salvation, and Isaiah uses light to depict God's saving activity. God's word is described as giving light. Many of us will be familiar with the a lamp to my feet and a light to my path reference. And just as light shows people where to walk in the darkness, so God shows us where we are to walk as humans. In your light, we see light, it says in Psalm 36. We are to walk, live, in God's light. But what is that? Well, throughout 1 John, if you bear with us through the series, we'll see that it encompasses a range of things, including truth, love, righteousness, eternal life, hope, purity, and confidence. As Nigel's already alluded to, John is in Ephesus at this time. This is about AD 85 to 90, and he's writing a pastoral letter to several Christian congregations that aren't of Jewish origin. And even in this early church, some of them had left the fellowship under the influence of false teachers. Now, last week, we looked at the first four verses of 1 John, and in that passage, John makes it really clear to these second and third generation Christians, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really had walked the earth. Now he's moved on to what appear to be three additional false claims that these teachers had been spreading. Now, scholars do have quite different views as to exactly how these False claims might have uh, been phrased, or exactly what false teaching it was that John is countering. But that's a study for a different day. What I'm going to focus on tonight is just a few of the points that John makes in his discussion about this particular topic. And the first one is this, that living in light gives fellowship with each other and cleansing from sin. The word for walk, which is the word that John uses, it's it's from a root, uh, peripateo, which means to conduct our lives in a particular manner. It encompasses quite a lot of things. It encompasses our thoughts. It encompasses our words and our deeds. If we're not walking in the light, we are walking in darkness. There's no scope for twilight as far as this distinction is concerned. Darkness is everything that is not light. So we're talking about falsehood, we're talking about hatred, we're talking about impurity, fear, and sinfulness. It is everything that God is not, and the two can't overlap. God is pure light, and by very definition cannot coexist with darkness. John hammers it home in verse 5 of our passage tonight. If you've... uh, closed it by all means please do join me with it, join me in it again this is page 1225 in verse 5 he says in him there is no darkness at all so we're talking about the fact that there is no hatred there is no evil no untruth no ignorance no hostility to dilute that perfect light in any way and so it is as john says that if we're saying that we're going to associate ourselves with God and his light, then our sinfulness has to be put aside, because the two cannot overlap. Anything else is hypocrisy. Actually, it's worse than hypocrisy. It's evidence, says John, that we're not actually partnering with God at all. In chapter 2, verse 5, which Katie read to us earlier... John makes this point again, that how we live reflects our relationship with God. John simply says that we cannot claim to love or to know God without also living in obedience to him. Now, I'll be honest, I'm really thankful that John doesn't say we have to be light, but that we are to walk in light, and that's a key distinction, Because if John was to say that we are to be light, it would mean that we are to be perfect as God is. He's not saying that. In this life, it's not possible to be perfect. But, he says, walk in light. Walk in obedience to God. And it has some really huge benefits. We get to join with each other, as it says in verse 7. And we can be certain that Christ's sacrifice makes us pure. Here's John's second point. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them. It's an interesting question preparing for tonight. Do I have a sinful nature? Well, certainly societally, we don't really see it that way a lot of the time. We talk of this idea of the innocent. But the truth is that none of us are truly innocent before God we do need to acknowledge our sinful nature. We can't deny it. We can't maintain that we are above sinning or minimize the impact of our sin. To do so is to deceive ourselves. We also need to acknowledge beyond just our sinful nature, our actual sins. The things that we do that aren't as God would have us do them. We're often really reluctant and I'm sure I'm not the only person here who's reluctant to label their own sins as sin. We kind of reserve sins for the big things like theft and murder. Those are sins. The little things I do aren't. Even when we concede some wrongdoings, we often try to rationalize or excuse our actions or are indeed inaction. My wife and I have had the pleasure of our five-year-old nephews staying with us, twin boys, for the last two nights. And it has been absolutely wonderful. I love them dearly. But what I'm really impressed with is their ability to rationalize anything they do wrong. And incredible, some of the lines of reasoning as to why they did the naughty thing, having been told five times not to do it, is really quite impressive. That at such a young age, they have learned how to rationalize their behavior. It's quite something beautiful in an odd kind of way. Now, my great-uncle was similarly, he was was a Bible teacher, and uh, and once had a man come up to him who said, I have not sinned. Never have I sinned. Insisted, I have not sinned. And my great-uncle just simply replied, I'd like to have a word with your wife. (laughs) Even when we're walking in the light, we still sin. We sin because we're sinners. But the light helps us to recognize that sin and that we need to make it right. That we can't ignore it, we can't tolerate it. Light is the great revealer, just as pulling back the curtains in the morning reveals all the dust in the room. It's the great revealer. And recognizing what is impure in us should lead us to want to confess that sin. And the more that we're aware of our sin, the more we should appreciate the remedy of it. The perception of Christians being holier than thou, which we frequently find, I've frequently had that in my Christian walk, that people think, well, yes, but you Christians, you're all holier than thou. It's the antithesis, it's the complete opposite of how we should be perceived. What unites Christians is that we know we are sinners who aren't yet perfect, and yet have found forgiveness, not through anything we've done, but by God's grace. Our sin should really remind us that we are still in need of his forgiveness. My sin scars me, but in the darkness, I don't see it, and I'm unaware of it, even and this isn't just because I'm really vain, even when I'm staring at myself in a mirror in the dark, I will not see myself. I will not see my sin in the darkness and understand that I am in need of doing something about it. The point of realising and spending tonight thinking a bit about our sin is not to make us feel bad. It's not to make us think, oh my goodness, how on earth is this going to work because I'm just so flawed? it should make us realize that actually, you know what? We can have a beautiful relationship with God in the context of verse nine. Let's read that one again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we accept Jesus Christ as our risen savior, that slate is permanently wiped. But it's because of that truth that we've just read, we know that when we confess our sins as we do every Sunday service here and as we've already done tonight, God will stand by his promised forgiveness and is just in that although sin can't be overlooked, Romans 6.23 reminds us that sin can't be overlooked, but he has has ensured that the price has been paid. The American pastor, John Wimber, Told of a plane ride at the end of a of a long day of ministry shortly after the plane after the plane took off he, he relaxed and uh, he just glanced around as we all do but he was startled to see sat across the aisle a middle-aged businessman with the word adultery written across his forehead john shook his head rubbed his eyes but it still appeared to be there The man, not surprisingly, soon became aware that John was looking at him. And, what do you want? As the man spoke, a name very clearly came to John's mind, a woman's name. He nervously leant across the aisle and said, "Um, Does this name mean anything to you? The man's face turned ashen and stammered, We've got to talk. They went upstairs to the lounge of the plane. As John followed him up the stairs, he sensed the Holy Spirit talking to him again. And after they'd sat down, the man looked at him suspiciously and said, who told you that name? John blurted out, God told me. God told you. Yes. He also told me to tell you that if you Don't turn from this adulterous relationship. He's going to take your life. John braced himself for this angry defense that he was sure was going to come. But the man just crumbled. In a desperate voice, he asked John, what should I do? John explained what it meant to repent or to turn from what is wrong in our lives and to trust Christ with them. John began to lead the man in a quiet prayer, but the man just exploded, bursting into tears and crying out, oh God, I am so sorry. The man launched into this heart-rending repentance. Before long, the fellow guests and the staff of all the plane were intimately acquainted with the man's past and now his contrition. Long story short, they ended up returning back to the main seating area of the plane and the man confessed all to his wife and led her to Christ right there on the plain. It's clear that our sin scars us. It's written all over us. We cannot, we must not, excuse it, deny it, or rationalise it. The question is simply, how do we respond when we are confronted with it? Just before Easter... I think the last time that I was here in front of you all, we thought about Peter and Judas. Both men messed up. Both betrayed Jesus in their different ways. Both sinned and were confronted with it. The difference was in their reactions to sin and being confronted with it. Judas spirals in his own guilt and eventually ends up committing suicide. Peter returned to Christ and was restored, becoming the rock on which the early church was built. But okay, if confessing our sin and accepting Jesus once and for all saves us, why do we still do it? Why is it still important to do this? I've said, that, you know, the Bible's very clear. Once we have accepted Jesus, our slate is wiped clean. Why is walking in the light, why is part of that still confessing our sins? Well, remember that sin means we are still in need. Unlike the false teachers of the time, we are agreeing with God that our sin is sin. We're acknowledging and affirming both God's sole authority to determine what is sin and what isn't sin, and also that he is the one whose forgiveness is needed and valued above everything else. Plus the more that we see our sins, the more we appreciate the remedy. And confession indicates that we want to turn from that sin and rely on his power to help us do that. It stops barriers from forming between us and God. I have absolutely no problem in admitting to you that if I am doing something wrong, and if I'm enjoying doing something wrong, it's not something I talk to God about. In fact, I deliberately don't. If I know I'm indulging in something that isn't healthy, that isn't what God would want me to do, I don't talk to Him about it. And for as long as that remains the case, there is this distance between us that He knows about, I know about, I'm just not doing anything about it. I'm holding back. And I'm not fully enjoying what it means to actually be walking His way, which I guarantee and I know from when I'm thinking more reasonably is ultimately, I'm going to enjoy that an awful lot more than whatever this is that I'm doing over here. Plus, and this is the nice benefit of confessing our sins together like we've already done tonight, it has the added benefit of reminding us that together we stand on a common ground. That we stand before God who accepts and forgives all of us. To deny that we have sinned is to call God a liar, as uh, one of the later claims is made. God said that we needed Jesus, every single one of us. God said, you're not right with me. Your disobedience means you've put that distance between us. But if you want to come back, I've made the sacrifice for you. To say otherwise rejects the need for Jesus, rejects the need for the sacrifice he made. It means that God's effectively condoning our actions and that forgiveness isn't necessary. That claim that some of these false teachers were making was enough for John to say that actually it's not God's message you've heard, it's a different message entirely. John affectionately explains to his dear children in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, walking in the light means you have no reason to sin. But even though we do sin, doesn't mean that all is lost. If we sin, we have a righteous advocate who pleads our case to the Father. God is happy to have Jesus represent us to him. As we go through this passage, verses 3 to 11 of chapter 2, explain what walking in the light is meant to look like as far as our relationship with each other, which itself, remember from verse 7, is one of the two big benefits of walking in the light. And it seems particularly appropriate for a church like ours going through this big transition in our leadership at the moment and awaiting our our new rector to think about what it means to look like walking in the light as a church. John's very clear about how we should be with each other. We have our example in Jesus, asking whether our thoughts, words, and deeds follow Jesus' lead in demonstrating God's love to each other. Those of you familiar with uh, the Gospel of John, John fifteen fourteen, you are my friends if you do what I command, says Jesus. Those who know God live according to the way he prescribes, Knowing God is something that's really personal, it's something that's really intimate, and it's something that is deeply relational. Let's remind ourselves of verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you've had since the beginning. This old message, or this old command is the message you have heard. He reminds us that the command to love each other is not something that's new, the Old Testament commanded one, to love one's neighbor, Leviticus 19. And Jesus quotes it in some of the Gospels. In our state of sin, we are still in need of the promised recovery. So our, for that, to that end, fraternal love has long been commanded of us. As partners in the same hope. What is new is the paradigm shift in the example of Jesus' own life and his sacrificial death. Self-sacrificial love for each other and even beyond continually testifies to the ongoing power of Christ's sacrifice and of God's love. We can't claim to be living in the light while hating a sibling in our community. The way we act towards each other should be a sign to those both within our community and outside of the church of just how God is to us. Those who love each other don't cause each other to stumble. And they don't cause each other to sin or to put them off the faith. In verse 10, it seems likely that John is making the contrast between those who've left the church and those who've stayed. He's saying to know which group of these is really in the light, we need to look at who is loving their siblings within the church. What I love about this is that actually nowhere in this bit here is John mentioning the word feelings. John's talking about our actions, which is great because he's actually saying, well, we don't have to like each other. I think this is a really important point, that actually we don't have to like each other, but we choose to love each other and act towards each other as God wants us to. To love is a choice, and it's shown in how we act. And I'm sure most of us have experienced this in some way, shape, or form. There are going to be days when we do not like our partners, our children, our parents, our colleagues, our friends... But we can still choose to love them. And we can still choose to value them as God does. Anyone can claim to know God. Anyone can claim that they know God. But those who really do know God are obedient to him. Knowledge of God and obedience to God are not the same. They're similar, but they're not equivalent. One commentator wrote this beautiful example. The child who knows her parents well, also knows their expectations well. And the child who loves and respects her parents honors their expectations. As we start coming to a close tonight, do our actions show that we are walking in the light? I help train health professionals. That's my day job. And we encourage our students to be Reflective practitioners. We don't want our students to be anxious about being perfect in every situation, but we want them to reflect on what they think, what they say, and what they do, and continually improve. And of course, if you'll forgive the pun, practice gets us closer to perfection. And so it is with our Christian walk. We're to reflect on what we think and say and do. How we pray, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we raise our children, how we treat our co-workers, how we treat our spouses, how we treat our neighbours, how we treat our friends. To continue being drawn to that attractive light, demonstrating all those things that we saw earlier. Love, hope, truth, righteousness. Because others will soon see the glow that comes from that. So, what is the truth about ourselves? Well, we sin, and it's highlighted in the light of God. But let us not be blind to it. Instead, let it remind us that we're not yet perfect, that we're still in need of His forgiveness that we're still covered by Christ's atoning sacrifice. And let us be reflective practitioners of our faith. Let us be objectively and consciously aware of everything that we think, everything that we say and that we do. To recognize the feelings that go with that from our perspective, but more importantly from God's perspective and from those around us to evaluate the good and bad in our situations, to look at the causes and the consequences of what we've done, and to consider if it was the right thing or if we could have done it differently. Let us resolve what we'll do in the future as we continue walking in his glorious light and reflecting it to those around us.